Hello everyone and welcome to episode 9 of series 2 of the Wide Open Road podcast, a podcast series where retired professional athletes share their stories about their transition to life after sport to help current athletes prepare for what's next. Do you remember when you said to your parents, an older sibling or a relative, tell me a story? Just those set of words gets the imagination flying. Indeed, the sharing of stories is such an important part of all cultures and never more so than as we live through this global pandemic. And today I'm thrilled to host Melissa Barbieri, OLY, as she shares her story about her journey in elite sport. Melissa, or Bubs, as she's known by many of her teammates and friends, is one of Australia's most capped female footballers, having represented the Matildas 86 times since her debut in 2002. A field player who through injury made the decision to move to the position of goalkeeper in order to keep playing at the elite level, and she never looked back. Melissa's story is one of resilience, resourcefulness and courage as she navigated her way to the top of the world's most popular and played sport. As you will hear, Melissa's experience in a team sport has also helped her cope with a very quick and hopefully temporary career change because of the COVID-19 global pandemic. And it is her experiences of having to be self-sufficient and resourceful that has helped shape who she is and helped her on her journey to the very top of her chosen sport. I'm sure you'll enjoy the inspiring and insightful story of Melissa Barbieri, OLY. Melissa Barbieri, it's so nice to see you. Thanks very much for joining us on the Wide Open Road podcast. As a professional sportswoman, can you describe how you've coped with the COVID-19 situation and what impact it's had on your thoughts around transition to life after sport? You know, I was quite lucky um, when it all started because a lot of my Melbourne City teammates um, were in between clubs and kind of um, floating around Melbourne. We were under the impression that we could continue to train at our club and be okay using the facilities because we, we were kind of our own little hub. So, you know, we continued training as normal two or three times a week and I was enjoying having everybody around. But then slowly, slowly, um, you know, players picked up contracts and then they were able to leave the country and um, I was left on my ownsome, <laughs> my lonesome really and you know I had to I, I had to just go uh, go with the flow and I think being a, an elite athlete helped me because you, you you take things day by day um, as an athlete you like the only thing that you kind of um, have to navigate is not having that schedule handed to you, you know, coming up with your own sort of set of rules and boundaries. But I treated COVID like any other game, you know. There are things that you can control and there are things that you can't control and I worked in those parameters and, you know, juggling uh, homeschooling with my child and uh, a stay-at-home um, working husband um, who treated my um, <laughs> my kitchen like an office kitchen, <laughs> um, all those sorts of things you kind of have to navigate. Um, uh, but apart from that, it was, you know, really business as usual until the, the second lockdown. You know, that's, uh, it's fascinating you talk about the importance for you of, of being an elite athlete and how the things that you've done as an elite athlete has really helped you through this time. Talk a little bit about some of the things that you've drawn on because the one thing that I speak with athletes a lot is that is that structure and they crave the structure and when they come out of the structure, they can struggle, especially as they're transitioning to life after sport. So what are some of the things that you drew on to help you just ensure that you could keep moving forward and uh, do the things you needed to do to, to get through this time, which for a lot of people has been incredibly challenging. I think for me, because of the way female sport is set up and I was in a predominantly, most of my career I had to navigate myself. So I had to find my own coaches. I had to do um, all my own training regimes. I had to ask favours of people. So I'm I'm of the era of finding your own and being resourceful. So I I use all those sorts of, um, I don't know, that sort of 
just fly by the seat of your pants. Like I, I, I totally understand how most athletes have routine. And I, and I certainly have that with Melbourne City when we finish W League. It's always very difficult to transition from W League into the MPL or from such a high-caliber club into any other club in the world, actually. <laughs> um, but I drew on my experience from all the years of, you know, I've always had to find my own coaches. I, I, I was number one in Australia for a very long time, because I wanted to be and and I really had no help from anyone else in terms of finding coaches or finding ways to train. I mean, when I played professionally in the men's league, I had a lot of help um, from a, a particular coach and that was just so that I could prepare for a, a World Cup. So, you know, being resourceful in, in this time it has being drawn upon because I had to do it in my in my playing career just to get by really and just to keep improving. And that I would imagine would be what you would consider to be quite a, a unique attribute or aspect of female sport generally from a professional point of view that it's it's taken a long time for women's sport to catch up with the men when it comes to the professionalism, the, the money in the games and the support structures that are centred around and we know that it's starting to change and it's it's really come on leaps and bounds over the course really of your career in elite sport I mean but surely that also must be an incredibly beneficial experience to have where you've actually got to be resourceful you can't rely on on a manager to do everything for you to pay your bills to find you a job or to find you other things to do outside of sport so I would argue that that's probably something that you'll you'll think back on or reflect on later in life to go you know what that was actually pretty helpful yeah, because I think when, like, for everything that's changing and, and getting better for our female footballers of today or female athletes, they're going to find a different set of things that are going to be tough for them. So for me, having to be my agent, my own manager, my own social media person, I was I was the the front line for the Matilda social media for many years. I was the one calling FFA and saying, "Why isn't this on the in in the on the internet? Why aren't we on the front page? You know, why is the Socceroos being advertised?" So I was all these different things, and you know, I was I was recently looking at um, a job on on the internet for the zoo, and being the social media manager for the zoo, and I thought I could do this job. I did it. <laughs> I did it for the whole team for a, a long time. Like I was in China for the Asia Cup without Facebook, still being on Facebook. So I was very resourceful. But, you know, in saying that, I had all these – I have all these um, – this ability to manage all my different things and still be uh, an, an elite athlete in this time. So when I found that I couldn't play sport, I couldn't coach sport – I couldn't do anything um, massage, which is my other background. I kept trying to find a job and I landed a job at Australia Post. And people in Australia Post, they're like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, this is what I need to do. This is just what I need to do. So I am living now and being able to walk into an environment where I don't know anyone, that I'm happy, I'm bubbly, that is all learnt from being in a team environment. That That is stepping into a new club, making friends on day one, learning everybody's names. Like I've, I've probably been at Australia Post as a temperature checker, mind you. I'm not sorting it. I'm not sorting email. I, I know everyone's names. I remember everyone's names. They are surprised because they only have to remember mine. <laughs> Uh, you know, how do you know my name? And I'm like, because I take notice and I know people like when you remember their name. And all these things are, you know, just my part of my makeup, not because I'm like that, but because, like, I was terrible at making friends at high school. Sport and team environments have taught me you need to come out of your shell. Yes, you can be private and you can be, um, you know, you know, put put yourself in a corner and not be bothered by everyone. But most of the time you've got to make friends and, and connect with people. 
and yeah, I did that within a matter of a week at Australia Post, and you know, people kind of wonder how are you like that at four thirty in the morning. <laughs> well, you, you just have to. You just sort of. You just sort of have to do it because I think you make an interesting point. Connection is so important, both you know, from a family perspective, friends. You don't have good connection, or sorry, if you don't have good connection on the sporting field from your perspective as a as an international football, or for some people, some people still call it soccer in Australia. You know, connection or lack of it is going to really impact the ability for the team to succeed. One of the things which I'm really interested in talking with you about for a second is. I always couch this story about going back to New Year's Eve. I was in Hobart. It was a beautiful night, surrounded by family and friends. We saw amazing fireworks. And to think that you could fast forward to October and we are in a lockdown, we've only just come out of a curfew. I mean, you you simply could not make that sort of stuff up. So how do you think that you've, if you like, just with respect to the work that you're currently doing with Australia Post, how do you think you've coped with that transition of just leaving the environment that you know behind for a period of time and walked into another one? I mean, what, what were the sort of emotions that were going through your mind as you were preparing for your first day when you had to turn up at 4.30? I mean, it's something to do. <laughs> so, you know, my my family comes from a hardworking family. Like um, my dad was uh, made redundant from Kodak when they switched from you know, film to digital, and he taught me very early that idle hands, you know, you can get mental uh, health issues and, you know, when you can't work and you can't do things that you feel, you know, appreciated, challenged, all those sorts of things, you can you can certainly drift away into some probably some serious mental health issues. So... I was excited at the prospect of being a functioning and contributing member of society, so I was excited. Um, I was nervous. Uh, um, I felt vulnerable because uh, being a temperature checker, you're actually the first line as someone comes in the door. If they've decided to come to work with symptoms, you're the one that's going to bear the brunt of it and you've got to have a, a lot of responsibility on your shoulders to say, you know, you don't look right, mate. You shouldn't be here. Um, and then have strength of character to actually say, no, I'm going to call your, your supervisor now to stop you from coming to work. And, you know, that was, that was very nerve-wracking. You know, it's interesting what you just said there because it seems to me like, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, you were a little bit nervous, excited, vulnerable. That sounds awfully lot, a lot like maybe a professional sportsman or woman who's making their debut for their country or for their new club. It must, I mean, the parallels are, are quite uncanny. Yeah. And I took, that's what I, I kept saying to myself, like, what would you do in this situation if this was any other situation? And, you know, I, I, I never, I never doubted myself because I've been empowered by football my entire life. And, you know, some of the challenges that have been thrown my way and some of the the abuse, the the banter, it, all, all of it has geared me towards this, this point in time. And, and, you know, as funny as it seems, it's still an accomplishment and it's still an achievement because many people have not been able to find work in a pandemic. For me to find a job in the pandemic and make a steady income um, <laughs> whilst not having my bread and butter available to me is just, it's quite uncanny. And, and that to me says to, says that you're a, you're resilient, you're basically prepared to do whatever you need to do to to get by, so to speak. <laughs> and and I think that's, a, that's an incredibly important trait, especially in times like this. And there's certainly plenty of listeners out there who I'm sure would take strength from the fact that at the end of the day, you've got to be resourceful. And I keep saying this, you know, the great Ron Barassi from the AFL system, you know, he's, his, his mantra is, if it is to be, it's up to me. So you've actually got to get off your backside and do it yourself if you want to keep moving forward. You know, it's, you know you're one of Australia's most capped female footballers. You've made 86 appearances over 13 years with a national team, the Matildas. Uh, you've been to four FIFA World Cups and you've been to the Athens Olympics. Can you talk about and describe what representing your country means to you when you reflect back on your journey from an underage 
aspirant to being one of the best in the world at what you do. Yeah, it's funny because when I when I was growing up, I I didn't know that you could play for Australia. I, I never saw it. I never I never got to envisage myself doing that because I didn't know. Like there was no advertising. There was no look. Um, you know, you could play for the Olympics. I didn't even know you could go to the Olympics until I was watching the opening ceremony of the the two thousand Sydney Olympics. And I saw girls that I played against in national tournaments and, and got MVP over and all those sorts of things. And I'm like naive, me saying, oh, maybe she plays netball or something. <laughs> or, I didn't, you know, not that netball's an Olympic sport, but I just thought that can't be, they can't be soccer players at the Olympics because I didn't know that you could. And I turned up at, you know, the first Melbourne game at the MCG where the Ollie Roos were playing and I rocked up and there was a girls' game and I didn't even know there was a girls' game on. And you were, so and you, turned, and you were playing. You are actually in the system then. I'm in the system. I'm in the system and I turn up and I'm like, what? How does that work? Well, it's just, it's just not promoted. It was not promoted. It was not like, it, I can't describe it. I don't. You know, as much as social media has changed the landscape of advertising and, and marketing for the Matildas, I turned up and it was like Sweden versus somebody else. Like, I think Sweden actually meddled in the games or something like that, but I was actually thrown and I thought, wow, I could go, I could go to the Olympics. I could be an Olympian, you know, at, at that time. So I didn't, know, I didn't know I wanted to be an Olympian or a, an Australian athlete until that, that day. You know, the opening ceremony when I saw people two days earlier, I'd gone to that MCG game and I'm like, this is crazy. So you're tw- uh, at that stage, you're 20 years old. If I'm my, 20, yeah. If, if my math serves me correct. So explain to me, when you went home that night after watching that game, was that it for you? Was it like, right, this is what I want to do. I want to be an Olympian. I want to play for my country. I want to represent. And if you think back to when you, when you sort of had that sort of aha moment, what was the next thing you did? Well... I made I made the Australian squad, so the big squad of about thirty players. I actually might have yeah, about thirty players. Um, and we had an Australia A versus Australia B side in Coffs Harbour. I played in that um, camp and that sort of setup when I was sixteen. And you know, I had all the accolades and things as a field player. And then when I went to the uh, I went to watch the Olympic game, and I thought. What have I done? Like I've missed this opportunity. Like what have I done these last four years? And I was having some real regret issues. And um, you know, my mum just told me flat out, maybe you didn't train hard enough. Like you know, you kind of make the squad as a sixteen-year-old. Do you get a chip on your shoulder? Do you start thinking, oh, I'm in a bit. Like I've made it because there was no underage teams, and that happens a lot with girls who play in underage squads. They don't actually step up to senior level because they kind of think, well, I've done that now. You know, I've played for Australia. Big deal if I don't play for the senior Matildas. So I I had to go, you know, I had to have a big hard look at myself and then I thought, you know what, I'm going to train like I did in the, that, that two-week camp, train twice a day and really go for it. So I enlisted the help of all my coaches, you know, trained twice a day, got all the right things. I had even Ernie Merrick help, helping me, um, Victorian Institute of Sport boys program. There was no girls program at the time. And I just, I asked everyone for help and I wanted to go to the Olympics and I ended up getting injured. So I'm still playing on the field at this stage and I got injured and, and long story short, I ended up at a surgeon because they thought I had a back injury and when when you think back yeah, it could have been a back injury because it was referring down my leg. And the surgeon said, you, you can't play football anymore. You have to give it up. You're not going to get back surgery as a 20-year-old. How, so, did, how did that make you feel? Well, I said, stuff you. Don't you know I'm going to the Olympics? <laughs> <laughs> no way. I'm like, so why? Why do I have to give it up? And he's like, well, you run around like he was being smart ass. Well, you run around and it hurts when you run around. I'm like, well, I'll stop running around. I'll become a goalkeeper. And is, is that so, so that that was your mindset where you just went, you know what? If I can't run around, I'm just going to change my position. And yeah. well, that just 
proves. I, mean, I hope he's listening, this surgeon, and uh, you, cle- <laughs> you, you clearly proved him wrong. But do you think that that, that comes from your innate uh, nature of being resourceful, just never, not accepting no for an answer and, and finding a way? Yeah, I, d- I don't like being told no. That's, I, I, I kind of get that picture. Yeah. I mean, I, t- I got told a no a lot growing up because my dad um, is staunch Italian, come over uh, to Australia, took Italy with him and basically thought women um, stay in the kitchen, they don't do anything. And my brothers were getting motorbikes and going on the motorbike track and I, wa- I was a big tomboy and I wanted to do everything they wanted to do. But my, my dad was like, no, no, no. And then once it came down to a point where I could actually say, no, hold on, no, this is my decision. I'm going to keep going until I get what I want. And the, the only problem was I had to try and now convince everybody that I enlisted to help me become an Olympian as a field player now become a cock. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me this, what, uh, what did your dad say to you when you got your first cap for Australia? Um. And not much. He was he was very 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 proud. Um, he cried when I called him about being captain. So I I managed to I can flip anyone's mind. Don't you worry about that. I can flip anyone's mind. I I I proved to him that you know girls women they can do whatever they want. I mean he's he's come a long way I shall say <laughs> <laughs> and, it's, and it sounds like you're dragging him kicking and screaming regardless well that's that's right I mean you know he, he, I, I, I think he, my mother had everything that I have but she was um, you know suffocated a long time ago like she she never had anyone to kind of bounce off and say you know what no, I'm going to do everything that I want to do because she's a very sharp, she's a great sharp shooter, she's a great athlete, but never was nurtured, whereas I had her backing me in everything. So whilst people were telling me no, I had my mum in my ear telling me yes. So, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I I had balance and my connection with my mum was stronger than anybody could say no to me about. So, um, yeah, it's... I managed to convince all my coaches as well that I was now becoming a goalkeeper. Look, I, it's not like I'd never played in goals before because I was a basketballer and a tennis player, you know, because the first time they told me that I wasn't allowed to play football, I was eight in an all-boys team. So they banned me from playing and I only started up when I was 14. So between eight and 14, where I wasn't allowed to play f- football, I played tennis um, and basketball, and I was a high-level tennis and a high-level basketballer. So whenever there was a spare game where nobody had a goalkeeper, they would be like, can you do it? And I'm like, oh, if I have to. So I had a little bit of confidence in the goal, but I had no idea what I was doing. But the reason why I became such a good goalkeeper straight away is because my foot skills matched with my basketball skills made me a very good goalkeeper Instantly, because is that because of the, the, the lateral movement and the ability to cover a lot of ground pretty quickly? Well, that my jumping because I'm quite small, I could jump, um, and the agility of a tennis player. Then combine that with the fact that the rule changes meant that you couldn't pass back to your goalkeeper anymore, and they pick it up. A lot of goalkeepers were struggling. They weren't able to play out with their feet very well. Whereas I was just an eleventh player on the field and I just had to learn my angles and where to stand and what to do at the, the right time. So I made my debut for Australia two years later. That's extra- I mean, that's extraordinary. But I mean, I think the thing is, is that it sounds like all the different sporting experiences that you had between the age of eight to 14 and then beyond, when you went from a field player back to a, a keeper, just set you up beautifully because it, it sounds like the game actually changed literally as you were coming in. So those foot skills became incredibly important as part of your arsenal to help stop goals. Yeah, yeah, and and becoming that sweeper in behind the field players and reading the game and knowing the game because I, I played at such a high level on the field, I could help my teammates. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not a goalkeeper that you'll see make top corner saves because I don't have to. 
because I get my teammates to do their job much better, which reduces my need to make... When we won the Asia Cup, um, you know, the semi-final against Japan, everyone's like, oh, you didn't make any great saves. And I'm like, no, because I didn't have to because I made my teammates play the game of their life. <laughs> that The Japanese team that we beat in the Asia Cup to qualify for the World Cup, they won the World Cup. That that you know, so we beat them uh, that little bit earlier, and you know, I didn't have to make a massive save in that game just because I I could just communicate and get my teammates to do the right things at the right time. So tell me about the mindset of a soccer goalkeeper in an Olympics or a World Cup when you're standing there and 10, 15 metres in front of you is an opponent who's going to try and kick that ball past you into the onion bag, as they say. What, what's what's going through your mind, when it, especially if the, if the scores are level and, and this is the last kick in a penalty shootout and you, you they, they score, you miss it, it's all over? What, what's going through your mind? Um, I, it, it's, it's really – it's hard to describe because – you're in the moment. If you're not in the moment or if you're thinking about anything else other than where you are, where you're standing, making all the decisions that you need to make in order to be in the right position at the right time, telling your teammates what's happening on their left shoulder while you're watching the ball, so many things to worry about. The score, everything is not even in your mind. You know, you set a goal when you step on that park your job is to not let any goals in. How, your decision-making up to, to lead to that end goal is happening continuously throughout 90 minutes because that's why I hate when people say, but you're a goalkeeper, you just stand there. No, mate, I, I am, I'm in the game 95 minutes, you know, like I'm well and truly in and about and everything about it, so... I don't even think to the score. The only time that you think to the score is when it's um, winding down and you've got to slow the game down. Uh, you've got to kick the ball out. You've got to take your time taking goal kicks. That's the only time the score line starts to, starts to drift in. But, you know, if you're chasing the game and you need to score, then you're the first line of attack, aren't you? So you've got to start it. You've got to make that first initial pass. You've got to decide whether to kick it long straight away. Um, so you're really marshalling. You're, you're almost marshalling the troops from the back of the court, so to speak, and ensuring that they're setting themselves up, hopefully, to get in a position where the strikers and the and the attackers can can actually score. You know, it's fascinating listening to you, listening to you speak about your your background, your backstory, and the resourcefulness that you've you've had to draw on throughout all of your career, and, and nothing's more prevalent than respect to what you're doing now with respect to COVID. Can you talk a little bit about the experience of a professional sportswoman combining training, perhaps a job on the side, study, all of the different things that you have to go through in order to be the best athlete and teammate you can be, but also having balance with a whole range of other things that may be going on in your life? So when when I think about it now, the reason why it's important to have adequate funds for female footballers um, is so that you can devote as much time as you can to the game. Now, in saying that, when a female athlete decides to only focus on football, it's probably going to be a bad thing because I know a lot of male footballers who only ever think of football and only do football and at the end of the day they don't have that backup plan when it finishes or at the end of the day. So all the benefits of earning a lot of money for females has some negatives. So when I when I have had to balance everything, it's it's made it easier for me to transition um, into the next part of my career. So when I think about it, having to have a, a part-time job and train and also do a massage um, degree, 
so that I could have a career post-football has made me a better human at the end of the day. If I, if I think about now, if I've just started now and I can only, and I'm only playing football and I earn enough money from my football not to have to do anything else, I'm not learning from all those other things. I'm not learning from time management skills and, and scheduling and uh, making time for family and friends. And, you know, sometimes when you just work and you've got nothing else, you kind of forget about all the other things you need to fit in. But when, you, when you're so busy, you actually fit more in because you're, you're like, I don't have much time. I'm going to, you know, see a friend for half an hour. I'm going to call someone. I'm going to make sure that I, I say hello and I do this. But sometimes I think the, the hardest thing about COVID has been I've got time. I've got nothing but time. And then all of a sudden it's October and you're like, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, there's no, there's no doubt that this – it's gone slowly, quickly, if that makes sense. It, it's sort of <laughs> because there are days clearly, you know, with the four children that we, we have uh, at our house, uh, sometimes those days seem to go on forever. But you look back on it now, we went, well, what, mid, mid-March, mid we probably started the first the first round of all this and here we are almost the midway through October and we still aren't out of it. So that's that's really fascinating. And I think the thing... For me, I, I, the one theme that keeps coming through this conversation, Melissa, is your resourcefulness and the fact that it's clear that you've seen it as a massive advantage that you haven't been in a situation where maybe let's fast forward to 2040 and the Melissa Barbieri of the 20, 2040s can probably make a living out of doing nothing but playing sport, that mm. that, that might, might be a disadvantage for somebody like you who needs to be busy and has lots of other things going on in your life. I'm I'm really interested in talking to you a little bit about the evolution of women's sport as you've seen it from a participant's perspective and how it's evolved over the course of your time, really, which you go back to 1996, four years before the Olympics when you were in that first squad. How do you think that the sport has changed from the perspective of maybe some of the older teammates that you were playing with back then who have gone on to do things outside of sport versus where you are and what you might think the next 20 years might look like from an evolution perspective with respect to how women might end up making a living out of out of sport? Well, I think back to, um, you know, when the W League first started in 2008, um, you know, we had that first season and a lot of the older Matildas played in that W League and then because we weren't getting paid, a lot of them had to to give it up after that first season because, you know, they had actual careers. (laughs) Like Kristen Swaffer played for Adelaide, Di Alligich played for Adelaide and and Di is a a customs um, officer. So she's like... Uh, sniffer dogs and things like that at the airport. Very, very important job. And when you're not making enough from your football, you can't do both. So uh, very from the very beginning of the W League, you had to choose. Are, are you going to continue playing as a, like a footballer um, and sacrifice and, you know, pinch pennies, do all that? Or are you going to be a career person? What? How did, you couldn't. You couldn't do both. Describe how that makes you feel, or maybe and your peers as well. When you, and this is not a, a men's sport versus a women's sport conversation, but you've got women who are peers of their male counterparts who are plying their trade in the EPL or around Europe and making, you know. I guess, you know, in relative terms, enormous amounts of money versus uh, their female counterparts who are skill-wise on a, on a par, yet you're having to scrape and scrimp for every last cent in order to, to live your dream, which is playing sport, but at the same time holding down a part-time job and doing all the other things that you need to do. I mean, did that ever frustrate you was it, or was it just something that it is what it is and you just kept moving forward? Unfortunately... We kept saying, it is what it is. We can't do anything about it. It is what it is. This is just what it's like. Until one day we said, no, this is not 
how it should be. This is not how it's meant to be. And I can't buy a house because I play too much football. How stupid is that? So we at, at the time we were getting a per diem, a daily um, allowance, which, you know, if you didn't spend any money while you were on tour or in a camp, you could save a little bit of money. But the, the camps and the tours were few and far between. So you might get two or $3,000 um, for that camp and then the rest of the time, but what was like three weeks long, two or three thousand uh, dollars, or five weeks long, sorry, and then you'd get nothing for another six months. But be expected to train every day leading up until the next tour. And so, what, the next camp. what was the? Can you can you describe the environment that led you to go? Hang on, no, no more of this. What was it? A group of senior players that came together and said, "Hey guys." No, it was one player. <laughs> so Heather Garriock wanted to buy a house and she'd saved up all her career, um, you know, odd jobs here and there and she lived at home with her parents but she wanted to put a, a down payment on a house and the bank wouldn't loan her any money because she didn't have a contract situation with football. She goes, I, I earn a living with football and they all said, well, you can't prove it. It's not, it's not in writing. It's not a contract. It's not, you know... You know, you have a camp here and a tour there. That's not an income. That's not a steady income for a bank. And so she, she, you know, got together and she said to a lot of us um, senior players, and she said, "Look, I think we should start talking to the PFA and or start negotiating ourselves that we have contracts." And so, what, what, what year are we talking here? Oh, geez, that's a hard one. Two thousand. It was Tommy, so maybe 2007, 2008. So that's not very long ago in the scheme of the evolution no. of, of women's sport. And obviously it's come a long way since then too, but that must have been – was it daunting to go to go to the point where you have to go to the PFA to help to get them to fight for the rights of you and your teammates? Yeah. Initially, initially it was just us and FFA. And it was fine. It was fine. Um, we had the the contract situations really good. And then we started to notice the discrepancies between us and the Socceroos. Um, like we couldn't, we weren't even able to get our our jocks washed or our bras washed. We had to do them in the sink and on tour and things like that. So we started to say, look, you're not paying us like the Socceroos. So you need to provide us internet. You need to provide us boots and um, and washing. <laughs> what, and what was their what was their reaction to that? Well, they started to fight that stuff because it was all extra costs. So that's when we I think we started to decide. Okay, well we need to go with the PFA because obviously they've got the Socceroos what they've got, and that's when we started walking into you know uh, meetings with the PFA and and joining with the PFA. I can tell you, I'm not sure whether you can hear that dog barking. That's that's our dog, Dusty, and he's very supportive of your argument, by the way. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Thanks, Dust. Yeah. And then but the, 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 the next time that we had to actually really ramp up the negotiations or put our foot down was when we boycotted, um, at the end of 2015, they wanted us to tour to America and we had to say no because... Um, you know, we just completed the 2015 World Cup. We'd got our best ever finish and they hadn't paid us for two months because our CBA was up for negotiation. And then without paying for us, uh, paying us for two months, they wanted us to then go on a plane and then play America and play three games in America against America. And we were like, no, we can't do that. And how, how, was that a tough decision to make? Very tough. I mean, I, I had I had just retired, so they said to me, "Oh, you know what? You can. We'll take you to America. We'll make it your last game. Big hoo ha for Bubs, the captain. We'll give you your retirement game." And I'm like, "No, I'm not going." And I had to I had to forego anything that was ever planned to help me celebrate my retirement, um, just to, to stick stick with the girls. Um, a lot of players wanted to, to play anyway, and that, that was their decision. Um, but uh, a whole group of us decided to, to, to stick together. 
and the US women's team were very supportive. Like, they'd already sold tickets to the games and, you know, they would have lost a lot of money <laughs> because we didn't turn up. I tell you, this is a, it's a great story in courage and just having the courage of your convictions to, 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 you know, for want of a better expression, draw a line in the sand. You go, no, what, no more. If you, got, yeah. if, if you want us to do what you want us to do, you've got to meet us somewhere in between to help us get better pay, better conditions to be able to play. And, and, and we're at that crossroads again, unfortunately, because of COVID. And uh, to be fair, our sport in Australia is at a crossroads itself without COVID. And, and this is, no. which is amazing considering the, uh, the, the euphoria that we, we experienced only a couple of months ago when it was announced the World Cup was coming. Yeah, and, and, and that's off the backs of our Matildas and how well we're doing uh, as, a, as a nation in the, in the women's game. But our men's game is not being supported by any television or any, you know, Fox Sports have pulled the pin. They don't want anything to do with the game. Um, the, the relegation and all that sort of talk and, and having a second tier and revamping the A-League, it's just not going well <laughs> in the eyes of, of many people in, in, the, in the football landscape and it's really the women's game that is holding up our sport at the moment. And, and how does it make you feel when you you look at the, if you like, the state of the sport that you love is in in Australia where it's, in my experience, it's sort of been, it's, it's almost like it's boom and bust with the round ball game here. It's either yeah. really flying or it's it's diving pretty quickly and it's going to take we're, a lot to get it back. We're in unprecedented levels of participation at a junior grassroots level. Something is going wrong in the, in the professional tiers and cost has a lot to do with it in, in terms of players not being able to continue through you know elite pathways because the MPL is, is so highly cost. Like There's so many things that you could say this is wrong and that is wrong. But unfortunately, the A-League ha- have taken a pay cut and, you know, the way they've set it up, uh, the boys are like, uh, I'm not really sure this is the way we should go about it or anything like that. And they haven't even spoken about the W-League. We, we, we created the W-League. Tom Samani created the W-League off the backs of what the Matildas did when we um, broke out of the group stage um, when we beat Canada in, in China in 2007. Uh, yeah, 2007. So that was off the backs of the Matildas. So we got a W League and now we're at a crossroads where they're talking about A League and they're talking about second tier and, and all the men's teams are talking about the men's teams but no one's talking about the women's teams. Are you going to make us take a pay cut? Because if you are, we go backwards. It, so- it sounds to me like you should be running the sport, Melissa. <laughs> now let, let's 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 flip this a little bit. Let's talk a bit about coaching for a second, because you're coaching or you were coaching until you've you started taking temperatures at at Australia <laughs> Post at four thirty in the morning, yeah. uh, which is a very important job at the moment, especially keeping people safe who are going to work every day. But what drew you to coaching, and and, and what was it something that you had always aspired to, or did, how did you come to become a coach? I, honestly, I coach every time I play. I, you know, I, you heard me before, I'm not the person that makes the big saves. I'm the one that, that helps my teammates do their jobs better. And that's what a coach does, really, just gets the best out of their players and, you know, gets them to succeed over and over again and get better each day. So it's not that I said to myself, I want to be a coach. It's just natural for me. And I started my badges whilst I was playing. And so I, I was probably one of the first female coaches to get a B licence and um, start the A licence course. Um, and, you know, the coaching staff or the coaching, um, the coach, the coaches, who are the coaches of the coaches? <laughs> what do you call them? Um, those people were telling me, oh, you're going to be our first professional coach. But I was still playing. So, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't get the accreditation quick enough um, you know, I had a baby as well, which doesn't help, um, you know, timelines. But, you know, being a coach for me is natural. But I don't know if I can coach in a club environment unless it's for Melbourne City because the environment is so good and the standards are so high and they treat us 
like the men's team. So when I'm talking about the W League and them reducing pays, I'm not talking about Melbourne City. <laughs> yeah, because Melbourne City does everything. And is this because of, is this because of their their connection with Man City? This is their their philosophy. So when even when they were Melbourne Heart, they said we don't want a team in the W League until we can do it properly. So it's just the philosophy of doing things the right way because that's what women deserve. Not tokenism, not uh, we're going to make it look like we're giving them the same and then not actually treat them the same. A lot of clubs do that. So, you know, on the social media it looks equal and then when they get to training the toilets aren't even open. You know, things like or they have three different training grounds. You know, they don't have change rooms. They don't have a place to call home. Um all those different things. So when, when I'm talking about the W League, I'm, I'm, I'm fighting for the lowest ranked team to have adequate facilities, to have adequate pay so that those players can get better. So there's a, there's a benchmark there that, that what you're saying is that every club needs to meet in order to be able to participate in that competition. Yeah, and it's got a, a lot to do with the pay structure and, you know, only recently did we have a flaw in our W League CBA. So we had a salary cap, yeah, but there was no flaw. So it could be zero. So, so some some players weren't getting anything. And that was only like a couple of years ago. So now we have a flaw, which is very substantial. And most teams pay their players the flaw only. I still think you should be running the sport. I'm convinced of that. Because the interesting thing is, is that you've got it from all angles. You're a pl- you've been a player. You're coaching. You've had to fight for a whole range of things over the course of your career to get where you've got. And you've also helped uh, form a team around you to help fight for the broader, if you like, the broader rights of your of your peers. It's a it's a pretty formidable skill set you've built over the course of the last <laughs> twenty odd years. But tell- I wonder, I wonder what what that job title would would be. <laughs> you know, the interesting thing speaking with you is that you have got this amazing sort of array of experiences that you've just simply built through what I call a couple of things. Firstly, through resourcefulness, secondly, through courage, and thirdly, through skill. And if you can wrap all them up into a into a little package and you could probably walk into anywhere, whether it be an, another sporting organisation, uh, coaching the national team, running the, the round ball game in Australia, walking into a boardroom and, and, and getting, you know, getting companies to think about team and think about how they can connect and to make, to make the sum of the parts better than just each individual. It, it's a compelling argument and I think it's you – need, you need to start thinking about this, Melissa, but one of the things I wanted to talk with you quickly before we wrap up is, is mentors. You mentioned before that you know, your father was, was almost an anti-mentor your mother was someone that just continued to push you and continued to encourage you. You can do anything you like. And then we spoke about coaches and trainers and peers who helped you get where you've got in your sport. But can you talk about some of maybe the lessons that that mentors have, have sort of imparted onto you that have really helped you and, and may even shape what you do, you know, over the course of the next 20 or 30 years? Mm. One of the one of my biggest mentors um, growing up was Ernie Merrick. Um, he allowed me. So the story with Ernie Merrick. My boyfriend at the time, when I was um, eighteen, he was still seventeen and made the Victorian Institute of Sport soccer team, and he couldn't get to training, so I would have to take him to training, and then I would sit on the sideline and watch him train. And Ernie looked at me one day and said. I don't I know you, like, who are, do you play? <laughs> and I'm like, yes, I play. And he goes, you're George's girlfriend. I'm like, yes. And he goes, and you're going to take him and sit on the sideline every training session? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, do you have your boots in the car? And I'm like, yeah. And he, from then on, from that point on, even when I broke up with George, he let me train with the Victorian Institute of Sport boys team. How, tell, tell me how that made you feel. It, it, was, it was probably the single most empowering moment ever because he looked at me as a footballer. I'm cr- I've got tears in my eyes. It's just it's brilliant. 
he decided that I was a footballer, not a female. And then he turn, he would turn up every day and treat me like a footballer. So I worked at the Victorian Institute of Sport too. I was the, a receptionist. Um, two years later, I, I, I applied for the receptionist job there. And so I got to see Ernie every day. And he would continuously remind me about, you know, how are you? And I'd say, oh, I've got a bit of – he goes, you know what, get used to it. That's a professional athlete's life. You're going to have a niggle every day. That's when you know you're doing something right. Or the banter, you know, pretending to, you know, do the can you hear this and, and um, you know, wind his <laughs> That's a pity we, finger up. P- pity we can't – ladies and gentlemen who are listening to this, you can't see the audio. I mean, the video at least. <laughs> the video. You know, he, he did the, you know, when you flip the bird and you roll your finger up and can you hear this and, and he turned up the sound and – that's in an office scenario. So, um, you know, he was he was probably one of the – and I house-sit for him um, when he went on holidays with his family. He had a dog. And I learnt so much um, from Ernie, not because he was flamboyant or anything like that. He was so down to earth. He never wanted any uh, accolades. I was to never give him a shirt. I was to never mention him in any speech or anything like that. Don't tell anyone that I helped you. Don't do anything like that. Like, he didn't want any notoriety. He didn't want anything. And tell me, explain the impact that had on you as an individual and on your career. Oh, huge, huge. M- mostly because he was the first coach I had to convince when I became a goalkeeper. And you know what he did? Instead of saying no, he said, all right, and then stuck me in goals with 20 teenage boys shooting at me and thought, you know what, I'm just going to prove her wrong that she needs to just pipe it and stay on the field. And, uh, well, to my credit, I didn't um, I didn't hold back and he, he got convinced after that coaching session. Now he tells the story that, you know. <laughs> he, he, he made you. He made me and, and all that sort of thing. He, yeah. he likes to do those ones, but only on the, on the down low. If you think about that and, and the fact that, you know, I'm a, I'm a father of three daughters and, you know, that sort of story is just a, a beautiful story of, of almost, you know, sort of bucking the stereotypes, if you like, where he didn't see you as a woman. He didn't see you as, no. a, as, a, as a man. He just saw you as a footballer. And, and I think that that's – I'd like to think that that's starting to creep into into sport and the fact that uh, all of the different things that are going on to empower women, whether it's in sport, whether it's in the boardrooms of Australian businesses and, and the like, don't see you for anything else other than you're a person and you happen to have a great set of skills, great knowledge, and you can do anything you want to do. Yeah, and I think every – you know, for me, it's all like everyone talks about feminism and, you know, you're a feminist. And I'm like, actually, I'm an equalist, whatever that is. And I I, I am very much, I'm, I'm totally equal. Like every time I've had something go right in my career, it's because I've had a male champion, a male champion. And this is why we must step together through this this is not we only have to catch up we only have to have you it's not holding our hand it's it's stop stopping um others from seeing us as females that that's why we need to have because we need to catch up like whenever a, a job is um put forward you have to think female for a certain period because We've been left behind for so long that people start saying, "Oh, she's got no, she's got no experience. If she's got no experience, she can't get the job." Well, she has never had experience because we've never hired women. So now that we're starting to hire women, you have to give them the benefit of the doubt for a certain period of time so that we can catch up. So it's not overly being feminist. It's just give us some time to come back equal. And then we'll stop wanting you to see us as females. For, you know, it's very hard to um, explain. But it's a it's a powerful message because a guy like Ernie Merrick has clearly 
given you the courage to do a whole lot of things that you've done because he just treated you as, as just like everybody else. Doesn't matter. He 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 was your equal. He wasn't above you or below yeah. you. And I mean, you know, there's this saying that the talk about relationships being either vertical, where uh, people either sit put themselves above or below certain people, depending on if you like the way that they think about themselves and how they look at and view other people. And then there's uh, the people who sit on the horizontal axis and they just everybody's equal. Yeah. Uh, and I think from that perspective, that. That's just a, a, an enormous example of of a fellow who has has helped you to empower you to do whatever you want to do and be whoever you want to be and and actually have the courage to have a crack. And that's and, uh, that's and I will say that it wasn't just because it was uh, the Victorian Institute of Sport and they were teenage boys. He did the same for me when he became Melbourne Victory coach. He gave me the massage therapist job and allowed me to train with the men. So I was training with. That's why I'm such good friends with Archie Thompson and and Roddy Vargas and Kevin Musket and all those boys and, and Danny Alsop because he allowed me to train with those boys and I got respect. And he probably more so empowered me to think these boys now see me as a footballer. So not only did he allow me to do that for that, he gave it to them as well. And so once when I moved, I'm jumping around a bit, but... They didn't know what I had to go through until I had my daughter, Holly. So down the track, I had my daughter, Holly, in 2013 and I wanted to play W League again and I could only get a gig in Adelaide, which meant I had to now come up with all these funds to actually live in Adelaide on my own because my husband had to stay at home with his job. So I had to sell all my memorabilia and gain memorabilia from other people. Where do you think I got it from? all the boys, all the A-League players that I had started to get to know with um, because of Ernie. And I'm talking about Matty Ryan sending me his kit and, um, you know, Archie Thompson sending me a kit signed by Melbourne Victory. Danny also gave me one of his uh, AC Milan jerseys that he swapped with one of the players. That earned me $1,000 on its own. So all these connections and these boys said, I'm sorry, Bubs, I didn't know you had to do this. I didn't know you had to do this, and it sucks. And a lot of them actually apologised and had no idea, and that's that's when our PFA started to actually say, you know what, these girls deserve more because the men started cluing on and saying, wow, I can't believe this is what they have to go through. This is It's such a, a powerful story about getting back to what you said right at the very start about connection and about if we can connect and we can work together, we can do amazing things. And there's no doubt that I think there's a, a few chapters left in this story about you and and the and and sport in general and and the and the and the round ball game in Australia, Melissa. Now, before we go, and thanks so much for your time. I could actually talk to you all day. It's it's it's, <laughs> it's been fantastic. But one of the things that I always ask my my guests as the final question is what would you tell your 20-year-old self about your journey in sport and preparing for life after sport if you knew then what you know now? Um, don't take anything personally. <laughs> Everything happens for a reason. And, you know, what <laughs> I think the, the main thing for me is everything that has negatively impacted me at the time that I thought was negative has always turned out for the better. No matter what it was, no matter how bad it was, something good came out of it. What it taught me, what it built in me, everything that ha that you think is really, really bad at the time, you will look back and you will say, that is why I am strong, that's why I'm resilient, that's why I'm a good person. I had to grow through everything, you know, all the injuries, all the nasty comments from coaches. Don't take anything personally. It's happening for a reason and, and one day you'll look back on it if you don't give up. That's the critical thing. If you don't give up, you'll look back on it and you'll say, that made me a better person. Lisa Barbieri, thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it and we look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you. You're welcome. 
Thanks for listening, everyone, to the latest episode of the Wide Open Road podcast. I'm grateful to each and every one of you for tuning in and for the wonderful support my guests have provided. Their stories are unique, inspiring and powerful, and I'm sure people from all walks of life will take a myriad of learnings about transitioning to the next phase of their lives. Whether that be a professional athlete, a soldier, or perhaps someone who has decided they needed a change of career in order to find out what they were put on this earth to truly do. As in the words of Mark Twain, the two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. As the Wide Open Road has evolved, it has become even clearer to me the power of stories. And if you or a friend would like to share your story, please reach out to me at edward underscore kemp at bigpond.com. Thank you for listening. Please stay safe. I look forward to bringing you more inspiring and uplifting stories in two weeks' time.